Heavenly Father, Lord God, God, we're going in your scripture, opening your word, Lord God. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, God, if you don't illuminate, it's just going to be words we're reading. God, open our hearts and our mind to receive your truth, God. God, pour out your spirit through your text, Lord Jesus. God, help us to understand what it is to live a holy life, God, a life of holiness unto you, Lord. God, touch the hearts of the believers that are going to receive this truth. God, do your work through your word. God, speak, God. Reduce me, fill all of you, God. May I die to myself in the moments as I speak your truth, God. But may your word go forward, that you may be glorified, that holiness may be worked out in the lives of each person here. It's by your strength I stand. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. amen. All right, my brothers and sisters, today we're going to be studying holiness. Our, the title, Motivations for Living a Holy Life unto God. Motivations for Living a Holy Life unto God. And our main text is one verse. It is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Nine. So if you can go there with me. Motivations for living a holy life unto God. The scripture reads the word of God. You, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen. The word of God for the people of God. But you are a chosen race. There is a motivation behind everything we do in life. When we hear a funny noise coming from our stomach, that tells us, oh, I'm hungry, so now we go get something to eat. That is a motivation. Um, we don't want to be homeless. We don't want to uh, be without food and clothing. So what do we do? We go, we work a job. We go and work a job. That is a motivation for us because we don't want to be in a certain circumstance or situations. Some people, they grew up poor, and they don't want their children to suffer the same fate. So they go to school, they go to, they get a trade, they do all of these things. They're, they're motivated to give their child a better life than they had. That is a motivation, that is a motivation. But what is our motivation for living a holy life? What is our motivation? What is motivating us? I mean, since Peter talks about holiness in the scripture, what is our motivation to live a holy life? Or what does it mean? That's another way of putting it. What does it mean to live a holy life? Since Peter says that we are a holy nation. This is a question that we will attempt to answer today. But in order for us to understand or answer this question, what is our motivation for living a holy life or what a holy life looks like? I think we have to define, to, uh, define holiness, right? If we're going to look at what holiness means and how to live a holy life, we must know what it means to be holy, right? 
So holy comes from the Greek word hagias, hagias. And in, in a proper or basic sense, holiness means to be different. It means to be unique. It means to be separate, separate from all others. So when we say that God is holy, we're saying, God, you are different from everything else. We're saying that, God, you're, there's nothing else like you. And it's not just like a person having a, a red shoe or a blue shoe and they're, they're different. But no, we're saying, God, you are so different. You're, you're, you're the opposite of everything else. You're different because, God, you are eternal. You're from everlasting to everlasting. And then you look at God's characteristics. He's all powerful. He's, he's all knowing. God is omnipresent. Everything that we are not, that makes God holy. But when the Bible states that we are to be holy as God is holy, and you'll find that in the first chapter of this book, verse 16, it's referring to the holy characteristics of God, the, the virtues of God. And, and that's what we see in the scripture. When, when the Bible tells us to be holy as God is holy, it's referring largely to the, the moral virtues of God. Because in God, there is no sin. In God, there is no immorality. In God, there is goodness. And so the scripture encourages us to take on that nature. And that is why in this letter that Peter is writing, he's writing to a some Christians who are suffering persecution, large persecution, simply because they are believers. And so, so Peter's encouraging these believers to continue to live holy. And so if you go to chapter 1, verse 14. I want to show you something. Go to chapter 1, verse 14. Because of what they're going through, he's encouraged them to live holy, but he gives us the type of holiness he's talking about. In verse 14, in the same book, chapter 1, it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which, um, which were yours in your ignorance. Verse 15, but like the Holy One who has called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. So when Peter is talking about holiness throughout this book, he's talking about your behavior, your, your actions, your, your thoughts. So in this text, our main text, we as Christians are called to be holy meaning we are called to be separate from the world. We're called to be unique. We are called to be different from this unredeemed world. But this verse that Peter is alluding to here, which is an Old Testament verse that Peter is talking about, Leviticus 20, 26, it actually takes on a new life, uh, a newer life in the New Testament. Because in Leviticus 20, 26, uh, this verse is given to the Old Testament people to be holy as I am holy. But when Peter speaks it here, it has a deeper meaning for us than it had for the children of Israel. And the reason that is, is because for Israel, guess what? There was no true image of holiness for them to model after. God was still largely a mystery. They didn't have no true image. And even God is still largely a mystery in many of the things in Scripture that we don't understand. But for them, holiness was the law. That's what they had. It was the Mosaic law. It was following this law. That is what holiness meant. They didn't have an image. And the only glimpse that they would get of God would be from prophets. Prophets like Isaiah when he had this, this glimpse of the Lord. So they didn't have an image. But here in the New Testament, 
the New Testament church, God actually wraps himself in human flesh and comes and models holiness here on this earth through Christ and gives us an image, a picture, a person that we can see in the DNA that lives a holy life. So God, through Christ, really, he is removing part of the mystery of himself and showing himself who he is through Christ. That's why John and or, or the apostle John in John 14, 8 and 9, when, when Philip goes to Jesus and he's asking Jesus to what show me the father, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, how long have I been with you? If you've seen me, you have you have seen the father. You've seen God, seen me. If you've seen my works, you've seen God's works. So another way of saying to be holy as God is holy, or another way of defining holiness is to look like Jesus. That's a simple way. If you want to just define holiness, it is to look like Jesus. How much a person resembles Jesus. That is the determination of holiness. And so in this book, Peter often uses Jesus as that standard of holiness. So in our own life, when we're looking for that holiness meter in our own life, when we're trying to gauge our life year over year, how successful my life is, the thing that we have to ask ourselves is, how much more am I looking like Jesus? If you want to you measure the holiness in your life, you got to ask yourself, how much more Am I looking like Jesus? You want to measure the success in your life? How much more year over year am I looking like Christ? We don't use the measures that the world does. The world measures by bank account. The world measures by your house. The world measures how many cars you have. The, 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 the world measures all of these other things. But as believers, Christ is our standard for holiness. He, he, he's the way that we judge if we are holy or not. We, we look at him. So when it comes to holiness in our finance, we look at Jesus as the model. We look at how did Christ give. That's how I look at holiness. We don't give self-righteously. Why? Because that is not holy. See, we use him as the standard for every area in our lives. When it comes to love, we love like Christ love. That's holiness. That's holiness in love. When it comes to showing mercy to others, we show mercy like Christ showed mercy. Those are all the standards. Men, you love your wife as Christ loved the church. These are all standards of holiness which you, when you read in your scriptures. Wives, are you encouraging your husband to be that leader in the family? These are all holiness methods, or not methods, but ways of living holy in our lives. By being like Jesus by submitting to Christ and following him and his word. So that is our, our standard for holiness. And we have to do this thing. And here's the beautiful thing about this. Everybody doesn't have this privilege. And some of you are saying, what, what privilege are you talking about, Jerome? The privilege I'm talking about is seeing Jesus Christ as holy. Everyone in the world, does not have this privilege of seeing Jesus Christ as holy. Part of the world sees Christ just as a man. Some see Christ as a great prophet, but the born-again believer sees Jesus Christ as God in the 
flesh. See, the only reason that you can see God or Christ as God in the flesh is because the Father himself has shown him to you. That's why the Bible says in John 44 or 644, no one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the father draws him. In Matthew 11, 25, he says, I praise you, father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. So the fact that you see Jesus as holy is a privilege, which brings us back to our main text here in first Peter, where he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, God's own possession. What Peter is trying to encourage these believers to see is that you are special believers. Yes, you're going through these trials, but you got to understand you are chosen. That's why he starts off that verse by saying you are a chosen race. God has selected you to, to reveal his son in you so that you can see Christ for who he is because others just see him as a man. But you see him as the son of God. And so he's letting them know that you are a special group of people. And some of us in here, we're looking for our uniqueness. We're looking for someone to make us feel special. But you're already special in Christ. We're looking for everything else, but not in Christ and what he has already done for us. We try to make ourselves unique by, by changing different styles, but you are unique by the fact that you are connected with the Savior. That is your uniqueness. That is what holy means. That's you're separated from the world. So you already have this uniqueness, distinction. So that's why Peter, he, he's encouraging these believers who are going through so much. The world is putting so much on them where he wants to remind them that you are somebody. You're somebody special. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And please understand that these first words that Peter's telling the church, they were first announced to the Old Testament Israel. Peter's quoting here. This is this is Old Testament. He's he's quoting. These words were first announced to the children of Israel, this nation. And you got to understand this. Nations are often summarized by a few words. And what I mean by that is the United States, for example. The United States, generally, I know there's some crazy things going on here right now, but generally, the United States is known, what, as the land of the free. It's known as a land of opportunity, a land of, of entrepreneurship. You go back to the Romans in the first century, what was the Roman nation known for? They were known for being this brute military strength, power. That's what the Romans were, were, were known for. You go to the Greeks. What was that nation known for? They were known for their philosophers, their, their worldly wisdom. That's what the Greeks were known for. But when God made this pronouncement to the children of Israel that they were a chosen race as a nation, they were going to be known for their relationship to their God. See, all these nations had these other things that they're going to be known for. But the children of Israel, they were going to be known for being a holy nation. A nation unto their God. That's why when the scripture says you are a royal priesthood, priests what? They're known for being holy and pious people in all cultures. And so that's why they have this distinction of being this royal people because they're going to be known as being holy unto God. That was going to be their distinction as a nation. They were going to be a holy group of people. But now that same terminology, royal priesthood, holy nation, selected, is now being applied to us here in the New Testament church. 
So what that means is that me, you, everybody in here, guess what? You are a royal priesthood. According to this text, you are a royal priesthood. And some of you are saying, wait, 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 wait. What do you mean, Jerome? I'm a, I'm a royal priesthood. Do you know my past? Do you know my history? Do, do you know the things that I struggle with on a daily? Do you, do you know the thoughts that actually run through my mind and, and you're telling me that I'm a, I'm a royal priesthood? What do you mean? How can I be a royal priesthood? Priests are holy. Priests are pious. I can't be a ro- royal priesthood. But to answer this question, how we are a royal priesthood, we have to get some understanding of the consecration process of the Arianic priesthood. Aaron, remember Aaron from the Old Testament? He was the priest. It was going to be him and his sons. They would be the priests. They would be the ones that would present the offerings. And so let me explain you how this process worked for the Arianic priesthood so you can see how you are priests right now. Before Aaron and his sons could be a priest, Moses would grab his sons, him and Aaron. They had to go through the ceremonial process. And so what they would do is they would get two bulls and two rams. And so Aaron and his sons, they would come and lay their hands on these animals. And by them laying their hands on on these animals, they're transferring their sin and their guilt to these bulls and these rams. Because the wages of sin is death, those animals were immediately killed. That blood was taken and it was thrown on the altar. But not only was it thrown on the altar for cleaning, that blood was now sprinkled and thrown on Aaron and his sons. So the blood would be got and they would throw it on Aaron and his sons for cleansing. Not only did they throw the blood, but they would get this thing called the, the, the anointing oil. And this anointing oil would be sprinkled or poured on the head of Aaron and his sons. That's where we get Psalms 133, uh, 1 and 2, where it reads, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robe. So that oil would be poured on Aaron's head and it would come all down all on his body, the anointing oil. So he had the blood on him and he had the anointing oil. And that was a consecration process for the priesthood. But guess what? When Jesus Christ died on the cross, for you who have the faith to believe, just like when Aaron and his sons put his hands on that animal, all of your sins and your guilt were thrown upon him. And when he died on that cross, that blood cleansed you. Just like it was thrown on Aaron and his sons, his blood now eternally cleanses you, according to Hebrews 10, 14. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, his blood has now eternally cleansed you, just like Aaron and his sons. And guess what? Just like that oil that was poured on Aaron and his sons, you who have believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, receive the Holy Spirit. That is your anointing. See, you have already gone through the consecration process. The blood has already covered you. You have already been set apart by the Holy Spirit. That is why you are a royal priesthood. And that is the point that Peter is making to these believers that you are special. You've already gone through the process. The Spirit has already anointed you and set you aside. You've already been eternally cleansed by the blood of Jesus. That means that you are now a priesthood. That means that you are now set apart as holy for service unto God. So I want you to understand this privilege that you have. Royal priesthood. That is a motivation for living holy. 
you have this position of being a priest unto God that not everyone gets. That should be a motivation for you to live a holy life unto God that God has made you and me, a wretch like me, his treasure, his possession. So this is the word of encouragement that Peter is given to the church. He's reminding them of their position as they face slander, as they are ostracized in society, as they are persecuted. He's reminding them, you are holy. God has chosen you. Don't forget that. I know the world wants to tell you you're a loser. I know the world wants to tell you you're not this and you're not that, but you must remember that you are royalty. You're a child of the king. You are part of his holy nation. See, we got to remind ourselves of our position, of who we are in Christ. That's what Peter is doing. And, and I want you to see the parallels here. The children of Israel... Matter of fact, go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. I want to show you the, the parallels between what's happening to the, uh, the, the Christians in this first century versus what's happening today here. Look at 1 Peter 12. This is why he's writing these letters. He says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, the nations, people of the world. So that in the things which they slander you, meaning that they're making false accusations about you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So guess what? This same slander is happening right now in America with Christians. You look on the media, Christians are slandered. All in the news, Christians are slandered. You look on movies, Christians are, are ostracized, we're slandered, we are talked of negatively. The same thing that is happening to this church here is now beginning to happen more and more here in America. But what is Peter's response to the church? His response to the church is, no, don't sit there and argue with them and go back and forth, but it's, no, it's do good. Or as we've seen in, in verse uh, chapter 1, verse four, 14 through 16, it's live a holy life unto God. Don't sit there and argue going back and forth. But no, you, you continue to walk holy. You continue to follow Christ. You continue to do those things that your, your scripture shows you. That is how we handle that. Peter's not showing us that we need to go back and forth and argue with people. He's encouraging to live a holy life. Peter said, let them see your good works that they may glorify God, which is in heaven. Does that verse sound familiar to you all? Peter says to let your good works, let, um, let them see your good works that they may glorify God. If you've been reading your Bible, especially if you've been doing a reading, you know that sounds a lot like Matthew 5, 16, right? Where Jesus says, let your light Shine before man in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father, which is in heaven. And those good deeds stem from feeding the hungry. They stem from clothing the naked to loving your neighbor, praying for your enemies, those who persecute you. Matthew 5, 44, from going, uh, if someone forces you to go one mile, Jesus said to go with them too. Matthew 5, 41. Jesus said, if someone sues you for your, for your shirt, let them have your coat. All of these things Jesus teaches on the Sermon on the Mount, they're not just things to be read. 
but they're ways of holiness. That's holiness living, living out what Christ said. Again, in a nutshell, holy living is how much do I look and live like Jesus? Not just in the sinful things that I don't do, but in the good things that I should do. Holiness is not just saying I don't sin, but holiness is saying I do the things that's commanded of me in Scripture. And I hope that you're seeing a common theme in these two verses of 1 Peter and Matthew 5 that we're paralleling here. The common thing that you see in these verses running through is that God is being glorified. The end of both of those verses is God glorified. And that is the chief underlying motive for us in living holy, that God may be glorified, that God may look great in your life. That is the ultimate and underlying meaning behind it all, that God receives glory. Because, see, in the Old Testament, the priest role was making sure that the people honored God by keeping the law. We as a priesthood have the same obligation. God's glory. We live holy lives. That becomes the motive for all that we do. So in chapter 1, 1 Peter, verse 13, I want to show you what he, what he, how he encourages the believers here. Go there. 1 Peter chapter 1, or chapter 2, verse 13. Since we see now the motive coming off of verse 12, why we live holy, why do we do these things so that God will be glorified. Now look how Peter encourages the believers to walk out this holiness. Look what he says here in verse 13, chapter 2, verse 13. He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Who's getting glory in this? God, submit yourself, he said, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, kings, governors. So what Peter is basically talking about here, he's talking about government. He's saying that we live holy lives as Christians by submitting to government, to our authorities. Hey, I don't like paying taxes. I'm sure some of us in here do not like paying taxes, but we live here in the USA. And because we are believers, we are going to be law-abiding citizens, so we pay our taxes because we want to model holiness by doing right. See, right now in this country, the country is very divided right now over the presidency. This is a divided country. But we also live in a free speech country where you have the rights to protest. And guess what? If you choose to exercise your free right, of speech and protest, just like Paul exercised his right as a Roman citizen and Acts 22, 25, then guess what? That is fine, but we can't slander people, but we can't blatantly disrespect people in government, even if they are mean to us or do things that we don't like. Why? Because God's glory is at stake. We still have to model holiness. And that is the point that Peter is showing these believers, even though you have people in government that's, that's, that's persecuting them, that's doing all of these things to them, he's reminding them you still have to live and walk holy. Why? Because God's glory is at stake. 
And so Peter goes through this letter. He, he addresses the government. And as you keep reading in verse 18, he addresses those people with harsh masters that are servants. And he says, even though they're, they're harsh to you, you still keep going. You still keep, you, you still keep living holy. You still keep thinking about God's glory. And then he goes down to chapter three, verse one. And now he's addressing the wife with a husband who's an unbeliever. How do you handle that? Let's look at chapter three, verse one here. All of this connects with our main text. And that's why I'm showing it because I want you to just see it from the scriptures. Look what he tells the believer or the wife of an unbeliever. He says, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word and disobedient here is not just a, a believer who's not following the word, but disobedient relates to chapter two when he's talking about not obeying or following the gospel. So they don't believe in Jesus. So that's the, the form of disobedient. As you see throughout this, this letter, when he uses the term disobedience, he's talking about denying the gospel. So he's saying, uh, even if they are disobedient to the word, they may be one, look, without a word, by what? The behavior of their wives. So what is he telling them here? He's telling the wives that even if they're unbelievers, you just go ahead and model holiness in front of them. You just keep on following Jesus. You model that. Even if you, you have a, a, a situation here where, where your husband is not believing, you just keep modeling Christ. You keep modeling holy living. So that, that the world may see that you desire God more than you desire your own temporary satisfaction. That's holiness. That's the point of our existence. Our point of existence is God's glory. Isaiah 43, 7. That's why the church exists. The church exists because of God's glory. A popular pastor says that missions and evangelism exist because worship doesn't. There's people that are not worshiping God, so we're going and sharing the gospel so that they now will become worshipers too. That's the point of it all. Missions exist, evangelism, because worship doesn't. So I, I know some of you are saying, because I, I kind of heard some of you were saying about the, the woman and the, the unbelieving husband and how that may be hard, right? You may have a bad marriage and, and you have this unbelieving husband and you're supposed to just stay in there and, and, and model holiness. And that could be hard for some. And I know that that, that sounds hard, but let me, let me make this clear. Jerome is not saying that if your husband is physically abusing you and doing all of these different things that the scripture is saying that you stay there. I'm not, I'm not bringing that in. But what I am saying is that even if you are in a bad marriage where you're not feeling satisfied, God's glory has to be your top priority. And the reason I say that is because in Luke 9.23, Jesus says that if anyone wishes to come after me, that he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so what that verse means in the context of 1 Peter when it comes to the woman and the unbelieving husband is that when it comes down again to my own temporary satisfaction and God's glory, I am choosing to find my satisfaction in God's glory. 
I'm going to choose to find my satisfaction in him being glorified than my own temporary satisfaction of what I want because I want more his glory than I want my own things. I'm showing the world when we do this, the unbelieving husband is seeing in the wife that she values God more than other things. And that is the whole point of holiness here. That it's not about our own temporary satisfaction. It is about God being glorified. It's about showing the world that God is more valuable, more satisfying to me than some of these things that I think I want and I need. Another example of this is uh, go to 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 4. Second Timothy chapter two, three to four. I want to show you this. And for the sake of time, I'm keep moving because I, I want to get us through here. But I want to show you how Paul encourages Timothy when he's going through his hardship. And I want you to see how God's glory is the motive in what he's doing here. Look what he says here. This is what he tells Timothy. He says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Verse four, he says, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. Here's the key point. So that he may please the one who enlists him as a soldier so that he may please him. Who's the one that has enlisted uh, Timothy as a soldier? It is Christ. And he's saying that it is God's glory that is the most important thing here. He said, for you to suffer hardship, the ultimate result is that God gets pleased. God gets glorified. Even if I'm going to go through this, I'm going through it for the sake of the Lord. God's glory is not my will, but thy will. So that that means that I have to demonstrate the gospel by saying in a marriage that it's not pleasing to me, that I'm going to stay in this God, in this marriage, demonstrate the gospel by showing unmerited love. I mean, showing love to a person who may not have earned it by showing this grace to a person who doesn't deserve it. Why? For the sake of God's glory. It's God's glory. Why I'm going to continue to model holiness, even in circumstances that are not pleasing unto me. It's God's glory. What is what is God's will? How does God get glory out of my circumstance? That is how we have to look at difficult situations in our life. We can't just say, God, pull me out of this, pull me out of this. But God, how are you going to get glorified? How can I continue to model holiness so that people may see more of you in this tough circumstance and not just what I'm going through? It's it's holiness. And guess what? A person who's not been born again, they can't do this. What I just said about living for God's glory, living holiness in the midst of difficult situations and circumstances, an unbeliever can't do this. Because when it comes to finding their satisfaction in their own selves and finding their satisfaction in God's glory, they're going to choose their self. That takes the work of the Holy Spirit. To do that, to walk holy. That's why the Holy Spirit is so important. You can't live and walk and live a, a holy life without the Spirit. Only a born again believer. And some of you are saying now, 
So does this mean, Jerome, that all of life has to be this rigorous grunt just for the sake of holiness? No, that does not mean that. And the reason it doesn't, the reason it doesn't mean that is our main text. Go back to our main text, 1 Peter 2.9. Our main text, 2.9. The reason why life is not just grunt work of living holy is in our main text. We looked at chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation. He says, a people for God's own possession. You are his, you are special. Now here's the privilege. Here's more of the privilege. He says, so that you may proclaim. In Greek, this means to publish the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Is anybody seeing the, the privilege and the benefit in this? He says, you have been saved. You have been chosen. You're a holy nation. So that, that's what this means. So that you can proclaim his excellencies. Meaning that everybody else doesn't get this privilege to go ahead and to proclaim his excellencies. That's only his chosen nation. That is only his group. That is only his possession. That is only his children that gets this special privilege. Guess what? In the Old Testament, only the priest could give the offering. The whole nation couldn't do it. It was only a special select group of people who were allowed to go and to present the offering. When a, when a leopardous person was going to be uh, pronounced unclean, the priest had that. He had that obligation. See, the priest had these special privileges that everybody in the children of Israel, they didn't get to enjoy. They were special. And since we are priests, we have special privileges that not everybody in the world gets to enjoy and do. Matter of fact, even the priests, when the children of Israel were going to go into the promised land, all the tribes would get different lots of land. But guess what the priest got? The Bible says in, in Joshua 13, 33, you guys are not going to inherit no land. Your inheritance is me. It's God. You get me. So they got the best deal. Everybody thought they had a better deal because they were getting land. But they're like, no, you're special. You guys, you, you get me. So we get to proclaim his excellencies, his goodness, his, his mercy, his love, his grace. And see, one of the first excellencies that this church got to proclaim is right here in the text. One of the first excellencies they proclaim is, look, he says, proclaim the excellencies of him. Here you go. Look, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is one of the first excellencies that we as believers can say, I was dead, but now I'm alive. I was addicted, but now I've been set free. Now I was enslaved, but now through Christ I'm alive. I'm walking in victory. My mind was lost, but now my mind is clear. See, I am proclaiming his excellencies when I share my testimony. That is, that is a part of it. And that's what they get to begin to proclaim. I was in darkness, but then he brought me to his marvelous light see these are the excellencies of god that we proclaim as royal priesthood but they also got to proclaim his excellencies throughout the book of first peter by walking in holiness when the world spoke evil of them because again the world got to see that they desired 
God more than their own pride because they didn't yell back when people yelled at them. They didn't do the same. They didn't go like for like. But the scripture shows us that they walked holy before God because they valued God more than their own pride. They showed that Jesus was more excellent than their own pride. But it goes much deeper than that. We have this privileged position as a royal priesthood because we get to do something else that's so, so special. And that is you and I, we get to be the hands and feet of Christ. You and I, we get to be the hands and feet of Christ. What I mean is in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, it says that you are Christ's body and individual members of it. I want to give an example of this. And this will be my last scripture to show you what I mean. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17. I want to show you this great privilege that you have to be the hands and feet of Christ, the body of Christ. That's who you get to be. Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verse 17. Look what Paul, Paul's writing to some Ephesians. These are Gentiles here. Look what he tells them here. He says, and he, talking about Christ, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. So, Paul is telling the Ephesians that Christ came and preached peace to you who were far away and those who were near. Guess what? Jesus, while on earth, he never went and actually preached to the Ephesians. Jesus' ministry here on earth, his mission was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was his mission. But when Paul went and gave the gospel to Ephesians, when he went there and preached the gospel, he became the hands and feet of Christ. See, Christ was preaching through Paul as he came and gave the gospel to the Ephesians. That is part of the privilege. See, as we go out in the world and we relieve the poor and we clothe the naked, guess what? We are being the hands of Christ. As we go and we lay hands on the sick and we pray for the healing, God is allowing us to be the hands of Christ. That is a privilege. The world doesn't get to do that. The world doesn't have that power. The world doesn't have the Holy Spirit. That is a privilege that only this royal priesthood, only this holy nation that we have, we get to go out to the world and be the hands of Christ, to be the hands of God. We get to share a gospel message that transform a life. You get to be the mouth. That is a privilege of royalty. That is why you are a chosen nation. That is why you must understand that you are somebody. It doesn't matter what the world says. You are special. You are unique. You are set apart as believers of Christ. So why do we live holy lives? Because God is holy. Christ lived holy and commanded us to follow him. Why do we live uh, holy lives? Because it brings God glory. 
Why do we live holy life? Because it is a privileged position that we get to be this royal priesthood, the body of Christ. Why do we live holy lives? Because we were brought with the precious blood of Christ from our old life to have new life now. So, brothers and sisters, understand your privilege. Understand your position. Walk and live holy to the glory of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we love you. We thank you. We honor you. God, we want to live holy so that the world may see you in our lives. God, we want to show that you are more valuable than all of our temporary satisfactions, that we want you more. We want you being glorified, God. And there are moments when we are looking for our own glory. We seek our own satisfaction or the temptation. I'm praying, God, in my life, in the believer's life, God, that you may become more and more valuable in our eyes, that your glory becomes the thing that we chase to the world to see. Lord, I pray that you do a work in the believers here, that they may know their position, that they have their true identity as, as royalty, a chosen race, holy unto you, set apart for you. Be glorified, Lord. Amen. Amen. Amen.